Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the University of Sydney and welcome to this Sydney Ideas uh, session. Before anything else, I want to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional Indigenous owners of this land. Uh, the University of Sydney is built on Aboriginal land and we uh, wish to acknowledge that from the outset. My name is Nick Enfield. I am Professor of Linguistics and Head of the Post-Truth Initiative here at the University of Sydney uh, and Director of the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre and it's my pleasure to welcome uh, all of you and it's wonderful to see such a nice uh, crowd. If you're coming in there are still a few seats down the bottom here, so um, uh, so please do come on down. Um, this is part of an initiative called the Post-Truth Initiative, which is supported by uh, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research here at this university, part of a Sydney Research Excellence Initiative, and we've been very uh, kindly supported to work together with a group of uh, Sydney Uni people from a range of different schools and, and faculties on the uh, post-truth crisis on the problem of uh, uh, misinformation, the problem of bullshit, the problem of trust uh, in public discourse, um, many facets of it uh, touch on our work, whether it's in public discourse or in science, and so we've, um, we've been working on this through this year, and today we've had a symposium uh, with the contribution of many, um, many members of the initiative, plus some international visitors. So we are taking the uh, opportunity to um, put on this session today and have a conversation for a larger audience um, on, on these topics. Okay, so let me just um, quickly introduce our uh, panelists. So um, here we have uh, Carolyn West, who is a senior lecturer in philosophy here at the University of Sydney. She received her PhD in philosophy from the ANU in 1997, uh, lectured at Monash and Macquarie Universities before joining the University of Sydney Philosophy Department in 2002. And she uh, looks at free speech, ethics, identity, and well-being from a philosophical perspective. Um, here we have Tom Nichols. Uh, who is Professor of National Security Affairs at the United States Naval War College. Very intriguing uh, name of that institute. He's a Sovietologist and a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion, um, which nobody can take away from him. He is a senior contributor, the Federalist, and the author of seven books. His most recent, uh, which many of you may have seen, is The Death of Expertise, the Campaign, against established knowledge and why it matters. And he was uh, uh, well known for during the, the 2016 presidential campaign, he wrote <clears throat> an epic tweet storm arguing that conservatives should vote for Hillary Clinton, whom he detested, I'm taking this from your bio, uh, because <laughs> uh, Trump was, quote, too mentally unstable, uh, unquote, to serve as commander in chief. Sarah Hayder is an American writer, speaker, and activist. In 2013, she co-founded Ex-Muslims of North America, where she advocates for the acceptance of religious dissent and works to create local support communities for those who have left Islam. In addition to atheism, Sarah is particularly passionate 
about civil liberties and women's rights. And finally, uh, James A. Lindsay has a doctorate in math and a background in physics and describes himself as a thinker, not a philosopher, which means Carolyn has one up on you, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, I think he meant it the other way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's the author of four books, most recently, Life in Light of Death. His essays have appeared in Time, Scientific American, and The Philosopher's Magazine. Um, and he's co-author with Helen Pluckrose, who's also here um, uh, visiting right now, of um, an article that's attracted a lot of attention recently titled um, A Manifesto Against the Enemies of Modernity. And we'll get um, uh, all of our guests to talk about these uh, things as we go. So what I, what I want to do now, I'll, I'll just say a few very brief comments um, by way of introduction um, to a few of the key ideas, and then we will uh, have a bit of Q&A with the panel members um, just to sort of get them to uh, introduce their ideas to the audience. And then we're very keen to get uh, Q&A with everybody involved. So we'll go into... Uh, roving mic mode at a certain point, and so um, do prepare uh, your questions. Um, and of course, do understand that we might not get to everyone in the limited time that we have. So, um, post truth, in a way, is the key theme here, uh, or at least it's one of the key sort of overarching problems that we've been trying to solve in this initiative. Uh, and uh, as you probably all know, this was voted the new word of the year by the um, Oxford Dictionary in the UK, um, who defined post-truth as, quote, circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Uh, so um, we've had a lot of discussion about what exactly this means and all of the sort of various ways in which it's manifest. Um, a few things uh, continue to come up and keep coming up, and we'll touch on some of them this evening. Um, one of them being the concept of truth itself, uh, and that being a very sort of thorny problem in some respects. Uh, everyone has a tough time um, really sort of putting their finger on objective truth. Some wouldn't say they had a problem with it, but there's always a lot of discussion. And yet, in everyday life, we, uh, we rely on some, you know, some basic facts, and we don't tend to dispute everything that gets said to us. Um, a second sort of theme that continues through a lot of what we've been talking about in this initiative is the question of power and the question of how power uh, can get, in, uh, get into the discourse around the facts, it can suppress facts, it can uh, push certain facts to the front, uh, it can recast uh, lies as facts um, and it can determine things like who gets to talk, who gets to uh, be heard uh, and, and many things that follow from that. And a third theme that continues to come up is, is really about our biased cognition and the fact that humans uh, have all of these biases in our cognition, confirmation bias being one of the most famous ones. There are many others where, in fact, uh, it's not always easy to be rational and to apply sort of rationality to our everyday uh, lives. So we're sort of uh, influenced by all sorts of cognitive biases, but we're also capable of overriding them in certain interesting ways. So these themes will, uh, will come up uh, this evening, I think, and as you all know from having registered, the, 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 the topic that we're interested in tonight is the broad questions of truth, evidence and reason, and I will come back to this question of uh, who can we believe, which really just gives us one way to kind of tie people's um, uh, contributions together. Um, so I'm going to start with Carolyn. Uh, 
so you have worked on free speech um, and you've worked on post-truth uh, as part of this uh, initiative. So we'll come to free speech, but maybe let's just start with post-truth from your perspective as a philosopher and, and, and tell us what you think the nature of the problem is. So um, you gave a general definition that I think is the OED definition where people think of post-truth as, um, as a culture, political culture, in which objective facts are less influential than um, personal opinion and appeals to emotion. Um, and that's fine, that general definition. But uh, I think if you want a definition that really uh, gets to the heart of what a lot of people find problematic about um, post-truth culture, it's useful to sort of distinguish uh, two components to post-truth. One has to do with um, uh, what's going on with speakers. So uh, it's, uh, a lot of people complain that in post-truth culture we have a situation where people, free, people free, feel free to mouth off, uh, say whatever they like about whatever topic they like, regardless of uh, the evidence and regardless of their, uh, the degree to which they're qualified to speak about those things. So philosophers might put that in terms of, you know, the norm of truth doesn't govern what speakers say. They don't, um, uh, it's not primary in their mind, say what's true. Something else is governing their assertions. So this, there's the speaker part where people feel um, free to mouth off uh, regardless of their qualifications. And then, but then there's an all, also a sort of audience component to it where there's a sort of, there seems to be a, a broad culture of acceptance of that way of going on. So people are often not held accountable for or criticised for um, speaking outside their area of expertise or for saying things that are blatantly false or um, obviously misleading or um, contrary to the evidence. So, and, and where other people are not held accountable for failing to criticise people who go on in that way and so on. So it seems to me that when you think about what people object to, I find especially worrying about post-truth culture. There's those kind of two aspects to it. So listeners have responsibilities just like speakers do? I, yeah, I think so. So I have a broader view about free speech and why it's important, which says that speakers um, uh, have certain responsibilities and, um, and audiences also ha have certain kind of responsibilities um, to uh, pay some attention to ideas, especially those which are... Um, might be less commonly expressed, not so much out there in the marketplace of ideas, um, where they have duties to be respectful and so on. But that, that, I sh that is a substantive and, I should admit, controversial view about free speech, which maybe we can come back to. So when you say that people have a duty to be respectful as listeners, do they also have a duty to... Uh, I mean, I, I heard you to be implying they have a duty to call people out as well as, as listeners. I think they do. I mean, I don't think people have a duty to agree with what they hear, but I think they have a duty to consider ideas, especially ideas that are not much um, discussed and haven't been given much consideration in the past. Yeah, and I think they have a duty to, yeah, call, call, people, on, uh, call people out for mouthing off in the ways I just described. Right. Um, so I'm interested in the, the work that you've done on free speech and maybe we could sort of turn to, to the free speech question. You could talk a bit more about that. Um, so you, 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 know, you talked about the usual framing of the free speech debate where uh, you know, the assumption is that, that there should be free speech across the board um, but we need to have sort of certain caveats around it where we would say, well, if, if, if the free speech is 
uh, creating certain harms, certain special harms that we can identify, then that's a case for saying, no, in these, in these cases, then we, we don't allow free speech. Um, so, I mean, this always gives rise to spirited discussion um, about, you know, what, who gets to decide uh, what would count as a special harm and what does not count as a special harm. So I wonder if you could uh, talk about that. So, I mean, a sort of very familiar way of thinking about free speech is that people should be free to say whatever they like and so forth, so long provided that it doesn't harm others. And, of course, then there's a big question about um, what counts as harm. And the traditional view is everyone sort of, which most people agree with. I mean, most people think that there should be at least some restrictions on free speech. We can argue about um, exactly what they should be and how far they should go and all of that. But I think a lot of people think that if what someone's going to say is going to cause uh, a riot, say, or cause people to rise up and sort of commit crimes of physical violence against people, then I think that it's reasonably uncontroversial that that's a legitimate um, reason for restricting um, speech. Uh, but then there's much, you know, there are all sorts of other harms that speech might cause, harms to reputation, um, material harms, harms to economic standing. So a lot of people accept that, that, that laws against defamatory speech are um, legitimate. And then there's much debate about how far beyond so... You know, is it legitimate to um, restrict pornography, for instance, on the grounds that it might harm, uh, harm women? Uh, and so lots of, lots of other kind of very controversial kind of cases where we're, where we're, we're asking what, what's the evidence that this speech causes harm and, and also conceptual questions about sort of what sort of harm would speech have to cause, cause in order for it to be legitimately restricted. So do you think there's a... I mean, you've just said that it's controversial, but... Uh, how to resolve the, the controversy? I mean, do you think that there are principal ways to sort of decide, that, to settle these controversies and to convince people that this particular type of uh, speech should be allowed and this other should yeah. not be allowed? So I have a general kind of framework for thinking about these questions, which is if you want to think about what sort of speech should be protected and what sort of speech should be restricted, then you need to think about what the point of free speech is or should be and why it's a valuable thing in the first place. And... So one very influential view is a view that goes back to John Stuart Mill, which says that free speech is important because of its uh, role in promoting truth or, um, more, more precisely probably, its role in promoting knowledge, sort of justified true belief. And so if you have that framework, then you can use that underlying justification and sort of say, well, does permitting speech of this kind in this particular sort of context promote the values that free speech is supposed to serve or does it undermine them? And so I, 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 that's the kind of general approach I favour. And then there are important, tricky and to some extent um, sort of factual questions about whether permitting a certain sort of speech doesn't promote these ends or not. Right, OK. Um, one more question for you, um, and it sort of relates to this question about harm and free speech. So that, you, you know, we've discussed this recent... Um, article in the New York Times by a psychologist, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who argued that speech can be violence. Uh, and her argument had to do with, you know, the idea that, uh, in a sense, when people are, well, when people are talking to us, they're, they're acting upon our bodies in a particular way, that we process what they say, and that can, you know, lead to the release of uh, certain chemicals, and that can lead to the experience of stress over certain periods of time. 
Um, and so she actually used that as a, uh, as a basis for an argument that speech can, be, can equal violence. Um, and she used that uh, in that particular article, I mean, in the conclusion of it, she said, well, so this is the reason why you should not um, allow Milo Yiannopoulos to talk at your university because his uh, speech is, equals violent abuse, but you should allow uh, Charles Murray, who has argued that genetic factors contribute to racial disparities in IQ scores, because his speech can be treated as a hypothesis to be debated in an intellectual fashion. Um, so what do you think about this claim? So uh, there's sort of two claims. One is the claim that there's speech is violence, um, and I agree with her that speech can cause violence, but what she's saying is something stronger than that, right? She's saying speech can be in and of itself or something violence. Uh, yeah, I, I just think that's a sort of conceptual confusion. If it's interpreted literally, I mean, I can see ways of interpreting it metaphorically where it, it makes more sense. But on the issue of... Um, uh, whether or not people should be free to express um, opinions that are likely to incite violence in audiences, if that's the reason why she thought that Milo shouldn't be permitted to speak, then I think if that were true, that would be a legitimate reason for preventing him from speaking. But I just think, just my, my own opinion is, is it's factually probably unlikely to be true. And uh, I think there's all sorts of broader benefits of... Um, responding to arguments like those he makes with kind of counter-speech and so forth, rather than preventing them. Also, he gets far too much attention when people say it's bad for speaking, you know, just let him speak, 15 people will come. <laughs> He'll be sort of contested that they're outside, there'll be some protesters or whatever, and that'll be, that'll be that. Right, okay, well, others might um, follow up on this particular um, point, but um, let's, let's open it up and, and turn to Tom. Um, you are uh, an expert on experts. Uh, you are an expert, and uh, and you know about uh, you know about expertise, um, for, as we know from your wonderful recent book. Um, I thought of you in particular when I saw on Twitter um, a wonderful tweet from Nigel Farage. Um, the Vatican, as some of you may know, the Vatican recently banned the sale of tobacco products. Um, and the World Health Organization uh, tweeted uh, some praise of this and said, you know, we, we applaud the decision of the Vatican to stop selling um, tobacco products, tobacco kills, and they gave a great little graphic of the, you know, the 7 million lives that are lost each year or something of this kind. Um, and I'm going to a quote from Farage's tweet. He says, the World Health Organization is just another club of, quote, clever people, unquote, who want to bully and tell us what to do. Ignore. Uh, so um, I wonder if you could comment on that in relation to your, <laughs> your expertise on experts. Well, uh, uh, first thing I should say is I don't represent the views of the United States government anyway. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, I'm um, almost loath, in the same way that you know, giving attention to Yiannopoulos is bad, I'm almost loath to have to discuss Nigel Farage talk, saying anything. But he, this tweet, this, this thing about you know, these, oh, these doctors that are trying to save millions of lives, you know, these clever, fancy-pants intellectuals, um, I think actually captured a big part of the current environment of anti-expert feeling, which is not really a rejection of expertise. None of us really reject expertise. We take over-the-counter drugs, we fly in airplanes, 
we turn the lights on, we use expertise all day long. Uh, what it really gets to is this kind of itching sense of resentment and inferiority that people like Farage and Trump and others have exploited for political purposes. And they've done this in a couple of ways. First, by uh, tr trying to convince people that experts or really anybody with any kind of advanced education or knowledge, because it's not just a matter of education. I mean, your, your plumber is an expert. Your electrician is an, elect is an expert. Not everybody, not everybody with a PhD is an expert, and not all experts have PhDs. Um, uh, the, the, this is trying to divide people into an us versus them kind of tribalism that says all these clever people, and I love that he uses this word, you know, doctors are clever. Uh, these clever people are trying to get over on you somehow that these people are controlling your life or manipulating your life in some way. The other thing, and um, President Trump did this very effectively during the campaign, is to conflate the word expert with the word elite. Now, uh, one thing that you didn't hear from my bio is that I was, a, I was an advisor to a United States senator. I worked in Washington. I worked on Capitol Hill. I was an expert. He was the elite. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's a, he was a member of a pretty exclusive club of 100 people. And God rest his soul, he's passed on now. He's a, he was a great man. Um, but this conflation of experts and elites is a very, if I may say clever, to use Nigel's word, it's a very clever conflation that's meant to generate immediate sense of resentment to create political capital to be exploited at the ballot box. And unfortunately... Uh, one of the things, James and I have been talking about this all afternoon, one of the unfortunate things is it works. Unfortunately, it works. Why do you think, that, why do you think it works? Um, I think resentment is, uh, in a democracy, resentment is always a potentially powerful force underlying populism. Uh, years ago, and I, I mentioned this in the book, it's one of my favorite passages, um, C.S. Lewis and speaking through his uh, creation of Screwtape, the, the demon that he created, his literary creation, he, he pointed out that, um, you know, people that, that some of the most destructive and corrosive uh, things that have happened in the developed world, in the West, in the democracies, has been because people have conflated the notion of democracy, meaning a system in which we are all politically equal, to getting it into their heads that it actually means a society in which we are all actually equal. And you can exploit the difference between those two things. Say that you know, we're all, we all have political equality before the law, um, but we're not equal. And, and there's a lot of mischief and mayhem that comes out of exploiting the, the differences, the natural and, and uh, ordinary differences among human beings in a democracy uh, because we are not all equal. We are not all peers. We are not all equally talented or equally knowledgeable in all fields. And somehow we've come to think that's our, that, that it should be that way and that it would be normal, but it's not. I guess I was um, thinking of the question of, you know, you, you were suggesting, uh, you know, that we rely on experts and we happily defer to their expertise if we're talking about the plumber or the airline pilot or what have you. Um, and I guess my question about, about resentment was why don't we resent the plumber and the airline pilot? I mean, do well, we're, we're starting that? to. Um, and and <laughs> we are. Uh, uh, you know, when I was writing the book, and, and I, 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 I'm not ducking the question here because underlying this is we all know that a plumber or an airline pilot is different than an expert in policy who tells you whether you should go to war. Right. 
but let me start with that first part, which is that when I was writing the book, a lot of people in a lot of trades and professions that I, I talked to for this book uh, told me that it is increasingly the case that the plumber who is trying to fix your sink or the electrician putting a wiring, a, a photographer, for example, told me that, uh, we have a photographer right here, said that every time she sets up her camera, somebody walks over and says, so uh, what lens are you using there? As if they would know. As if they have any idea, but it's empowering. I think it's a way for people to reestablish a sense of lost control in a very complex world. To reject expertise is a way of regaining your autonomy, to say, no one can tell me what to do. I'm a perfectly competent person in every way. I don't have to listen to my doctor about getting a vaccine. I don't have to listen to the plumber who tells me that my sink is going to be expensive to fix. Um, I don't have to listen to some smarty-pants professors telling me that I don't understand complex issues. Now, when it comes to policy, this becomes extraordinarily thorny because, and I, and I developed this a little more length in the book, but the, the advisors are not the deciders. We can give our best advice, but in the end, the only accountability is through the, the process of democratic accountability and elections. Um, and I think, and, I, and let me just stand in defense of experts and say something that'll make everybody mad, and then I can shove, shove it back to Nick uh, to ask a different question. Um, but I, I also think that there has been a, starting, going back to the Farage quote, there has been a scapegoating of experts for bad decisions made by the public that there's been a lot of buyer's remorse about. Now, in the United States, why didn't you experts tell us not to buy expensive houses that we couldn't afford? Why did you experts tell us to go to war in Iraq? Now, in fact, um, in my field, international relations, all, almost everybody in my field took out a full-page ad in the New York Times saying, this is a very bad idea, don't do this. The public was actually quite in favor of finishing, at least the American public, I should limit myself. Saying, they were very much in favor of settling scores with Saddam Hussein, who uh, most Americans felt like, you know, why hadn't we killed the guy the first time? But in retrospect, it was, you experts told us, you, you assured us, you warned us. Um, and we do make mistakes. Experts do screw up and get important questions wrong. But um, we're usually better situated to give you our advice than you are to simply do it um, by you know, Googling, um, which is now the answer to everything. Yeah, so I want to um, just talk about the kind of individual's role in all of this and the sort of different individual differences, if you like, in terms of how we, how we behave. And, you know, in, in, in what you've written, you've uh, talked about the, the so-called Dunning-Kruger effect, um, which, uh, you know, is that where those who, who don't know become especially confident that they do uh, know about something. Um, and it's a familiar, it should be a familiar phenomenon to, to many of us. Um, and you say that the reason for this is an absence of, of what's called metacognition. Um, and so a lot of the work that's going on at the moment about how to solve this problem um, is about this idea that you can become aware of your own sort of cognitive shortcomings and that you can outsmart your own mind in a certain kind of sense. Um, and I assume that's what you're, what's, it's, what behind, it's behind what you're saying. Um, the question is whether you're pointing to population differences that, that others would then say brand you as an elitist. Are you saying that people are in, certain people are, are, are able to do this kind of uh, metacognition and certain people just aren't? Or, or are you saying that metacognition is something you can learn? Uh, both. 
and if that, uh, saying that, you know, there are some people, the Dunning-Kruger effect says, the dumber you are, the less likely you are to know you're dumb. Uh, and the example I always give is that if you, I don't know, if, you know, how big karaoke is anymore, but it's the, like the guy who goes up, butchers a song, right, and everybody's covering their ears, and he walks off stage, and he says, nailed it. <laughs> I was great, right? And everybody says, no, no, you really didn't. Uh, that's a lack of metacognition. The, when you write, people who write who can't see that the paragraph is structured poorly or has dangling participles or run-on sentences who say, this looks great, that's a lack of metacognition. Um, can you develop it? Yes, I think that's part of what the whole enterprise of teaching is about. Um, I teach writing uh, at night, and I, you know, being over someone's shoulder and handing them back an edited draft is to say, can you start recognizing these problems? That's what a good editor, what a good teacher does. Are there people who just don't get it or who are never going to be good at some stuff? Yes. If that brings me an elitist, then I'll take it. But, you know, there are, we're not all going to grow up to be astronauts. Uh, and I think this is, uh, you know, a word that came up earlier and I used it on the book. There is an element of narcissism in this that says, anything I can put my mind to, I can be good at. Let me be, if no one's told you this before, that's a lie. <laughs> Uh, this, is, this is always, and anyone here who teaches has had this experience with a student who gets a terrible exam, and, and their answer to you is, but I worked really hard on it. I'm sure you did. And it shows that no matter how much you work on this, you're not good at this. <laughs> uh, and, and that's just something people, once upon a time, I think people accepted that, say, okay, this isn't my bailiwick, it's not my cup of tea. Uh, but now it's much, people really resist hearing that. So um, can I just ask you one more thing and then we'll, we'll, we'll continue on. Um, but I wanted to just get you to remark on the question of gun control. Uh, and the reason is because um, you know, you're an arms control... I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> you're an arms control expert. Um, and, of course, gun control is a big thing. When we in Australia look at the US media, we see um, you know, these just unbelievable, diabolical news um, and, and it's really stunning I think to a lot of people in Australia to see what is going on over there and, and kind of inexplicable in all sorts of ways and I know that recently you've, you've engaged with this uh, kind of question so um, I wonder if you could comment on, on, on the puzzle of, of, of gun control and how it relates to what you're saying. Yeah, part of the reason I work on nuclear weapons is it's an easier question. Uh, um, I, first, let me say a couple of things about my own background. I'm from Massachusetts. My parent, my um, dad, and my brother were both police officers. Um, guns don't—I mean, I don't—I don't carry one. I don't own one. I don't really care about them. Uh, but I'm not a stranger to them. Um, but I also don't come from a kind of area steeped in gun culture. Uh, New England is one of the areas in the United States just isn't that. We're just not part of, you know, normally not part of that kind of gun culture. Nonetheless, uh, like every other American, uh, you know, I come from a culture that you have the right to own a firearm. That's a, it's just, just not, and this is partly why Australian solutions are not going to work in the United States. Um, we have a different constitutional system. We have a different cultural construct. Where this intersects with this whole problem of knowledge and post-truth, is that um, people present arguments about gun ownership that are so irrational as to kind of short-circuit the ability of anybody in America to debate this. Um, and I wrote a piece uh, about two weeks ago in the Los Angeles Times where I said, look, 
you know, some, should you carry a gun? That depends. I mean, uh, you know, I know people who work in dangerous areas. They work with a lot of money. They have concealed carry permits. Fine. That's, you know, again, it depends. It varies from state to state, as some of you may know. Um, where I happen to live, concealed carry is a very difficult permit to get. Other places, you know, fine. Um, but what's really striking to me is how the gun control debate in America has been totally skewed by the inability of, of and I, I would say Americans, but I would say most people in the world, to understand mathematics. When this terrible tragedy happened in Texas, where a guy shot up a church, uh, there was, a, of course, Fox News personality who said, this is why everybody who is licensed to conceal carry should carry a gun in church. Now, my only point was the odds of you being involved in that kind of shooting in a church is like, you know, you might as well buy Powerball tickets and assume you're going to hit the lottery seven times in a row. Um, people say, oh, no, you know, anything could happen. You got to, well, you know, again, coming from a family of police officers, I know that carrying a gun around is slight, is, it's actually most concealed carry people in the United States are quite responsible. The number of accidents and, and other issues with concealed carry in the United States, quite low. And this is where the American left refuses to listen to numbers. They say, no, it's dangerous. Everybody's walking around, you know, like John Wayne. It's really not true. On the other hand, the risk of carrying a gun compared to the risk of being involved in a one in a million mass shooting, one in a billion, you know, this is, I think, partly the effect of the media, of emotion. This is the classic post-truth thing, right? Facts don't matter. My emotions, my feelings, the images I'm seeing on television uh, are... T and I had people jumping all over me because of... I wrote one piece in the New York Daily News and one piece in the Los Angeles Times, which meant that I got both coasts mad at me at the same time, so that kind of had the country covered, uh, where I said, this is... You, a lot of reasons for carrying a gun, but this isn't one of them. And people went nuts. They just said, no, no, I'm in danger all the time. They vastly... Americans vastly overestimate how much danger they're in at any given time. The same people, and it's not just about guns, and I'll stop here, but the, the same people who say, you know, this government, our government has to do something about terrorism. We have to do something about terrorism because we are in dire, we, we Americans are in dire risk from terrorism, said while they're texting and driving. <laughs> uh, and when I say this, you know, they kind of shake their heads and say, you just don't get it. And I'm like, no, I think I get probability and statistical inference pretty, pretty well. So. Thanks. Well, let's move to Sarah. Um, so uh, I'm going to be sort of reacting to some things that you've written in your recent essay uh, called Only the Truth Will Prevent Harm. And, and there are other issues that we talked about um, in the symposium today where you were really bringing forward the questions uh, of identity. Um, uh, in relation to truth and in relation to the claims that, um, that, that people can make. Um, so what I wanted to start with was a question about a point that, that you made in, in, in that essay that I found really interesting. You, you made the point that um, community leaders uh, are sometimes the last people that you should ask for statements on behalf of, of a community. Um, and so I wanted you to explain you know, why that is in relation to the sort of examples that you gave forth, but also to, to, to talk about how you think that extends you know, beyond, beyond those specific examples. Sure, yeah. Um, I have uh, some issues with the way that we conceive of 
communities and tribes, specifically when, when they are based around an ethnic identity or a religious identity, um, there's a sense uh, that they, the communities themselves are not evolving, that they are static, um, and that uh, members of communities are, are, are um, not diverse in the ways that they look at the world and how they conceive of themselves as a part of it. Um, there is, there is um, an effect that can, can take place when an, a community leader, leader is chosen to represent the community in a public, public way. Um, in that article, I was specifically talking about um, Muslim Americans and uh, community leaders um, within, the, within religious, those religious networks. And uh, in, in my opinion, it, especially within religious, uh, religiously conservative communities, the, the kind of person that's going to be elected to be the community leader, the kind of person who's going to be elected to be the face of that community, is necessarily going to be somebody who's going to put a good face on the community, not just represent them well, but also speak of, of them well and sort of, sort of perform a PR function as well. Um, it's not going to be uh, the, the people at the fringes, the people on the extremes, the reformers, the kinds of people who move a community, especially if it is a growing and, and shifting community, from one direction to another. In the case of Muslim American communities, there are uh, liberal reformist Muslims. They are not always received very well by the, the broader community, but there are, in fact, the kinds of people who who while we may not actively be looking at as, as um, people that the community is proud of, it may be the case that in 50 years or in 100 years, those are the people that you would say, oh, wow, those are the people that, that made this change possible. And in, in uh, choosing a community leader and then giving them this platform and then, dis, uh, uh, and then addressing them as if they speak for the community as a whole, it, it has this effect of silencing all of those reformers who are already... Uh, silence who already have difficulty um, sharing sharing their view and, and trying to convince their their communities to change. So you're, when you you're talking about silencing in this particular case of people who've left Islam, is that is that what you're referring to? Uh, those who have left Islam, but also um, liberal and reformer reformist Muslims. I mean, there are Muslims who are who are at the fringes. There, there are women who who campaign against the hijab. They don't believe that. Uh, I mean, there are many different justifications for why they don't they don't believe it's an Islamic practice or a moral practice. But they exist, uh, and they are not always looked upon as as people that the community is necessarily very proud of. In fact, they might feel specifically ashamed of those, of those people. Right. Um, so I, I wanted to raise another sort of issue that you, that you talk about, which is um, uh, in relation to what sometimes called the noble lie. Uh, and so I wanted to get you to sort of comment on the... the you, you quote um, Barack Obama saying and many other leaders have, have said this, um, saying that Islam is a religion of peace, at saying that at a certain moment, uh, you know, where that is, you know, viewed as either simply a statement of truth or it's perhaps viewed as a sensible thing to say, um, sort of given, given the particular situation. So can you, can you sort of explain what it was that you, that you wanted to say around that particular quote? Yeah, um, I think it was exactly, it was, um, he said, Islam is a religion that preaches peace. peace. That's what he said. That preaches peace. Uh, and 
that, uh, that statement is absurd to me, just right at the outset, it's something that, that is somewhat nonsensical. On the one hand, how are we defining peace? I mean, it, Islam can consider itself a religion of peace, uh, and in fact, in, in partially it, it, it does consider itself a religion of peace, but it defines peace in a very specific way. It, it defines peace as a condition in which um, we, we, we are all believers and followers of, of this one particular God. Um, but uh, more, more generally, I'm, I'm exhausted of, of hearing these claims um, from people who I, I can feel don't actually believe what they're saying. That there's, there's a sense that we have to say this and we have to acknowledge it because there's, there's value in saying it, it's helpful to say it, um, and if we repeat it often enough, it will become some sort of a reality, or at the very least it will prevent some, some greater harm from taking place. Um, but it is... It is a lie, and it is, I don't think anyone believes that, that Barack Obama, well, I don't know, maybe other people believe it, but I certainly don't believe that he believes uh, that Islam is a religion that preaches peace. I believe that he believes it's important to say that. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, you know, so that's, you, that's what you refer to as a noble lie in the sense that, you know, let's say he, 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 he doesn't believe that, that would, therefore it would be a lie in the sense that he wants people to think he believes it. Uh, and, and so forth, but the uh, intention or the claim behind what, what you're saying would be that um, it, it's a good thing and the world's a better place because I've said this, um, this lie. I mean, another sort of kind of misinformation, if you like, is, of course, uh, suppressing a piece of truth rather than saying a falsehood. And, and, you know, this is another domain where people have said um, it's actually good <clears throat> not to let the truth come to light. Uh, and the obvious example being classified information and privacy, private information. We don't want to sort of let uh, certain private information come out because it's, it's personal, etc. So sometimes when you know people hear a claim like what you've said, the truth, uh, only the truth will prevent harm, is an interesting phrasing. Um, uh, Julian Assange is sometimes said to have said, uh, "The truth can only do good." Um, do you think that that's do you think that that's true? I mean, where's the limit on sort of when 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 truth should be somehow suppressed? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, when I was you know naming my essay, I was specifically thinking about about this particular scenario. Um, so I, I can't comment if this is uh, truth is always something that will that will per prevent harm. Perhaps it will. Perhaps I'll change my mind tomorrow. Um, but it I think it is telling to to look at the circumstance in which um, you know, espionage takes place. Uh, it is something that occurs because, um, because there already is a mistrust that, that exists between the countries. There's a sense that if we don't do it, they're going to do it no matter what, and we can trust them to do it to us, so we're going to have to spy on them. Um, in order to, you know, in, in order to protect ourselves, right? So it it occurs in a in in a circumstance where we already don't trust each other, and we can trust that the other person doesn't trust us either. Um, in the in the sense that this relates to the political dialogue, and this is what I'm concerned with, is that is that we can we can end up in that same place where we can trust that that what the other person is saying is a lie. Or that, that they will lie whenever they whenever they need to lie, whatever whatever they need to do to reach whatever political goal. Um, that they are not actually honest. Um, uh, they're not really honest. So when we're engaging with them, we're not really engaging with what they truly believe. And I think this just has a really poisonous effect on on dialogue as a whole. 
Assange has decided he's found a new limit yeah. Oh, yeah. now that it's happened to him. Um, perhaps that will come up in discussion. Um, so maybe just one more um, thing to, to ask you about um, before we move on to James. I mean, something that you're clearly assuming in the, the case that you, you, you make is that double standards are a bad thing. Um, and, um, you know, I think a lot of people would, would, would agree. Uh, it's an interesting question as to sort of whether that's a fundamental truth or whether that's a kind of a cultural position to take. Um, so it's interesting just to note, for example, that there's double standards in a lot of, well, you might call them double standards in the sense that many situations, certain people have rights that other people don't have. So if you're in my, uh, if you're visiting me in my home, you know, you have, you can be in certain rooms of the house, but you probably shouldn't go into other rooms of the house. Or adults and children often have very different sort of rights, and we normally wouldn't want to call those kind of double standards. So one question is, you know, where do you where do you draw the line in terms of your, uh, you know, uh, your opposition to double standards? I mean, the argument I'll just quote from your paper: you're saying the same progressives who recognise the importance of defending the civil liberties of Muslims in the West will overlook the abhorrent treatment of apostates in Muslim countries. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, very clear sort of statement of saying, you know, um, double standards are a bad thing. So um, I guess actually this brings us back to the free speech question, which I thought you might want to comment on. Is that double standard for you um, behind uh, the solution to this free speech kind of problem? Would you rather see, for example, a, um, you know, a Nazi uh, uh, giving a, uh, giving an address at a university rather than not um, in the name of preserving or going against the double standard? I feel like there's maybe maybe two questions there, but the, the first part of, of when, when, when you were discussing double standards in general, you gave two examples. Um, the one about, about your home and different responsibilities, I think we recognize that in, when we occupy different roles in society, we're going to have different responsibilities and duties. I don't think that's controversial. Um, uh, but the second one was interesting uh, in that, um, in that you, you said that we have, children have different responsibilities than, than we do. Um, and this is a trend that I've noticed um, throughout discussions of Islam and Muslims, <clears throat> that we cannot treat Muslims in the same way that we treat, that we would treat a rational actor who is like us. Um, and the, the reasoning behind that is because we can expect uh, a Muslim person to behave irrationally, that they are not quite, um, are equal in that sense, in the way that we can expect children to, to, to behave rationally in the same way that adults behave, because there's an inequality there, um, because children, you know, children are children, and they haven't developed properly, and perhaps uh, that's the way Muslims are. I mean, I think this is such a condescending view, and I, um, I it's just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to um, say anything about you. It's a good question, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly something that, that, that you hear all the time, um, and it should be considered um, a condescension, and it should be considered a form of dehumanization. Um, it isn't the case that uh, Muslims are moral innocents um, or, or handicapped in some way, um, and we, sh we should hold them to the same standards that we would hold a white Christian uh, because they are moral and, and rational equals. Thanks. So let's uh, move on to James. Um, 
while we have time. So, um, James, I'm going to focus on um, the uh, article that I mentioned that, that, that you've co-authored with Helen Pluckrose um, called The Manifesto Against the Enemies of Modernity. And, you know, it stirred up a lot of interest and a lot of uh, discussion um, online. Um, and I just thought it would be good to start with the sort of, I mean, what I found really intriguing was your sort of reframing of, you know, left, right, centre um, as being really that the sort of extremes and left and right should really be treated as the same thing, um, opposing um, something that was much more sensible. So perhaps you can, you can explain the, the, the concept. So there's a, a number of things involved with that. So I do think that the far left, the far right are nearer to one another than they are to the people between them on the political spectrum. Some of you have probably heard of that in terms of what's called horseshoe theory, that instead of a political spectrum on a line, it bends around, and that philosophically speaking, they're very close. In fact, I would argue that the way that it bends around is that on a, now we've got a, a left-right dimension, we've got another dimension in space where, sorry, I'm a mathematician. <laughs> Guess what? It's time for Euclidean geometry. So now we have a, two di a, a second dimension, and this dimension is the, in which it, the space in which it bends is defined on an axis that the way I've drawn the horseshoe uh, has liberalism in the classical sense going this way and authoritarianism going this way. And I have a host of reasons that'll take us pretty far afield for why I think that's the case. But in general, to kind of address the question, uh, I think that when I say liberalism in the classical sense, I mean this broad concept that kind of collects uh, the big projects of what we have enjoyed as a modern society or the, the projects that led to us being able to enjoy a modern society that we have now, which is why we chose the word modernity uh, rather than liberalism, which in the U.S. is very, very politically charged. Uh, the conservative side that votes for Trump just sees them as libtards, so we can't use that phrase uh, unless we wanted to shut out an important part of our audience. What we have is three main components that we see in a big way that have provided all of this. So when I say liberalism is up here, authoritarianism goes the other way. We're, we're talking about democracy in the political sphere. We're talking about capitalism in the economic sphere, and we're talking about broadly construed scientific inquiry in the knowledge-producing sphere. So when I said modernity, or when Helen and I said modernity in the manifesto, we're talking simultaneously about the philosophical and social architecture that led to the conditions that allowed us to enjoy the fruits of modernity, which we also use to wrap up inside that term. So philosophical and social structures combined with the fact that I could come here on a 787. Um, so, I mean, I'm fascinated by the, 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 your definition of modernity. So you, what you say um, in, the, uh, in the article we're talking about is to quote, you are pro-modernity if you believe in the scientific method, human rights, liberal democracy, individual liberty, and established epistemologies based on evidence and reason. So that's sort of mostly you just listed those things, except you didn't mention individual liberty. Um, just Maybe you just forgot. But uh, I was particularly interested in the individual liberty side of, um, you know, this, uh, of this, this package, and it made me wonder, um, what, what is it about individualism 
that is crucial to this kind of concept of modernity. I mean, many people would, would, would want to argue individualism is a particular cultural uh, focus. Um, you can't actually have a society without a lot of sort of corporate persons, whether they're family or other kinds of kind of cooperative constructs, etc. So is, is individualism really necessarily connected to those other properties of modernity as you want to defend it? So this is kind of funny because I'm an American and I could just say I'm an American, that's why I said that. No, that's not fair, but this is going to be a fairly American answer in a sense. I do want to pay attention to the fact that I think that the central facet of the entire human drama is the tension between the individual and the collective. Uh, the group, be that the family, be that the, the social network, the community around the society, the, the, the nation, the world, there's a fundamental tension there. But ultimately, the way that I see this is that the two sort of operate in overlapping spheres. And the collective sort of operates in a sense of a social contract that des designs the fundamental infrastructure in which the individual can play. But the individual, and here's where I'm going to sound very American, the individual knows, and this is really funny because I'm actually pretty far on the left, and this is going to sound like a profoundly conservative answer. The individual knows better in many, many cases about what is likely to, or what feels like is likely to produce happiness for him or herself than someone else telling him or her to do what it's going to be. So if you think in terms of the society as a structure that allows us to build an infrastructure in which the individual can pursue things according to their own wishes, according to the advice that they, they gather. Not to say that they always make the best decisions, but then that's, again, to sound very conservative, where personal responsibility comes in as a counterbalancing virtue. Uh, then you actually kind of see the, the individual... I keep saying individualism, and I really mean individuality, because individualism is, is something slightly different. Uh, but it should allow for a maximization of the potential for achieving utilitarian happiness that's not available when someone external to yourself is telling you how to be. And, of course, even infant research shows that if you want to make a baby mad, hold its arms. Don't let it do what it wants. It doesn't matter if it, what it wants to do is stupid. Hold its arms. It's going to get mad. It's going to reduce its utility and maybe what you want to do then is try to strike a balance between, you know, that's really bad, that's going to injure somebody else, or is very, like, very likely to cause injury to you, so think better of it. But maybe don't tell people what to do if you want them to maximize their, their happiness. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, obviously with grown-ups, um, we cooperate and, uh, in ways that babies can't, and, and, and we achieve amazing things through doing that. Um, I wanted to just sort of raise this question of identity which has come up once or twice um, and I think that, that um, you know you, you, you make an argument similar to, to Sarah's where you're saying um, that one of the problems with the anti-modernists on, on both sides is that your uh, identity will <clears throat> oftentimes interfere with whether people will listen to the reasoning you know that you have so you, you're making a statement you're offering an argument and and you're pointing out that identity politics is a problem with this in this respect um, and I gather that that's also related to this problem with individualism but I wonder whether there's a kind of paradox so you write um, in the essay that supporters of modernity must unite and you know you know my reading of that is that actually what you really want to do and you probably probably should do is offer a, a really great new identity that, that, that has all of these properties and people should pick this one instead of those other ones. 
I mean, would that be an unfair um, reading? Um, <laughs> Please, everybody, join and donate to my new church. That's right. <laughs> Checks payable to me. <laughs> Make them large, please. I'll put up a big picture of eyes to intimidate you so you know you're being watched. No, um, man, I went too far with my joke because now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> so in general, I don't actually subscribe personally to the idea that we should take identities upon ourselves at all. Uh, but this is a sort of a fringe view. I know I'm a little bit of a weirdo when I say that. I fear, generally speaking, for myself that if I take an identity on and then I start looking for ways to confirm that identity in myself, and so I may lead myself into bias, but that's perhaps a fringe view. In general, what I would say is what, we, what I just alluded to or said is that there is an underlying social contract because we're a social species and there's going to have to be an underlying social contract, and we are also going to have conflict if we're going to have people with competing interests interacting with one another. So we need to choose a system and I want to speak in terms of systems rather than identities. We need to choose a system that manages that conflict in productive and useful ways. So some ways we've tried are not as good as others. And this project that I, I'm calling liberalism, that I use the stand-in modernity in the manifesto to, to mean based on, uh, that's represented by, I guess, democracy, capitalism, and liberal science, knowledge production. This is a proven method by which we can channel conflict in a way that allows us to resolve differences without having to resort to violence. So in a sense, it's a famous statement by an American thinker, Sam Harris. He said that we're always stuck with a choice between conversation and violence. And so this liberal order, this, this modernity that I'm saying that people off of the fringes should come together and unite to defend and stand up for is to say, that, well, if we're going to be in a social order, let's pick the one that minimizes certain problems, the one that, that can turn conflict productive. Because if you, to follow the horseshoe again, if you go downward toward the authoritarian bent, you maybe can get some advantages. Certainly, you can answer questions more quickly. Uh, <laughs> parliamentary government or, or, or Congress isn't the fastest way to solve many problems, or in, in general, debate can take a very long time. But the further that way you go, the more and more you rely on sect conflict to resolve your, con your differences. So when we see that, you see some that are, are just verbal, or that, that fight in the kind of uh, socioeconomic sphere, uh, sphere uh, boycott everything because so-and-so CEO said the wrong thing at the wrong place. That's an economic, a form of economic warfare being, being waged. Uh, in a sense, if we want to manage conflict to productive uses, we don't want to rely on sect conflict. We don't want to elect President Donald Trump because I hate Hillary Clinton and the libtards need to be taught a lesson. We don't want to have sect con uh, sectarian conflict solving our problems. We want to have dialectic. We want to have a deferral, if not reliance upon reason, evidence, conversation. So I think that when I say we should unite there, I think that that's what I mean. We should sign up for a social contract that works and has a long-standing proven track record of working. All right, thanks everyone. So now um, we, I'd like to open it up um, to the audience. I'm sure that you've got uh, questions and as I said, we won't have time for everyone, but if we keep the questions brief, 
um, and if we keep the responses briefed, uh, you know, we don't want to just have a recency effect. So we have James, we have Sarah, we have Tom, we have Carolyn, um, and we'll start with this gentleman in the middle here. Thank you very much. Um, to get down, to, uh, I address this question to the whole panel. To getting down to cases, now the biggest lie in Australia is the Australian Constitution itself. Now, people are being, have been fed this lie by vested interest groups for 117 years. Uh, Australia actually became an independent, sovereign country on the 1st of January 1901. The Americans became an independent, sovereign nation on the <laughs> when they won their war of independence. Um, they had a declaration of independence. Australia had a proclamation of the Commonwealth. Now, from that point on, the vested interest groups did not want to lose power. But any time any discussion is brought up on this, it is silenced. Now, the, 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 the question is, you ask, who can we trust? Now... This, this question has been put to uh, chancellors, deans of uh, law schools, and they refuse to even engage in discussion. They know the, the seriousness of it, and they are suppressing the truth. So how can we get the message across that Australia has no constitutional monarchy? You cannot have a constitutional monarchy in a commonwealth. You cannot have it in an independent right, United thanks, States. Thank you for your so question. who we'll, can we we'll, trust? We'll ask the panel if they have comments on it and then um, if we just bring the mic down here. Does anyone want to have a go at that? I think, I think one of the things about expertise is isn't one of the norms that you're supposed to, to uh, say when you've got no idea what the answer is to the question. I'm, I'm going to avail myself of, <laughs> of that. Yeah. Any comments? It happens to be the uh, Queen's uh, 70th anniversary today. I don't know if that's of any help to you. Um, I had a question for you, Tom, um, about gun control. I speak as a Canadian. Um, you've all talked to some extent about cultural identity. And I'm with David Brooks of the New York Times on this. I think that people like Michael Bloomberg um, telling people in Arkansas, for example, where a significant number of people would prefer to vote for a deviant than a Democrat, shows just exactly, a big pun, in Alabama. Um, I think that it's all about cultural identity. And it's not until somebody who's in the NRA, for example. I mean, if you watch Fox News, you're in a total bubble, as you know. So somebody from the NRA saying, you know what, guys, maybe guns in churches and schools, could we maybe, you know? The people that have had the most effect on terrorists are former terrorists. In, 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 in understanding indoctrination and so forth. Don't you think that as long as people who are pro-guns see the other liberal elites telling them not to carry guns, there's going to, get, there's going to be absolutely no movement, no kinetic no, I, movement at all? I don't think there's going to be any movement on gun control in the United States, pretty much ever. Um, in part because, uh, just for structural reasons, your point, about, your point is very well taken, though, about um, that there are people who um, revel in gun ownership almost as an act of defiance against the other half of the population. 
Uh, and I, I'm going to confess something. I felt that myself at one point because the way President Obama approached this uh, whole question of gun control was so offensive to me. Uh, my, I should add, by the way, my father at 88 years old, a for, again, a trained former police officer, uh, actually held off a home intruder with his service revolver uh, and yet almost accidentally shot the guy. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I'm very... I'm glad he didn't, uh, because then my father probably would have been, you know, in jail instead of the, the other guy. So I have mixed feelings about this. I think, you know, again, I think it's okay to own a gun. I think responsible ownership, all that stuff. But the way that uh, we went through a period about three, four years ago, where the way President Obama and the New York Times Editorial Bureau talked about this, I, I turned to my wife and said, maybe we ought to buy a gun, just in case the day comes where I can't ever. Instead, I, I'm going to confess something to all of you. I did something much smarter. I, I uh, had some extra money, and I bought some stock in uh, a gun, in a gun stock, because I knew that President Obama was the greatest salesman for guns, and I made money. And now I don't own. I just I don't own anymore. Uh, but it, I said this guy. People, if I'm feeling this way, other people are going to feel this way. Uh, so I do think that, in part, the way the American left approaches the gun debate makes people like me say, "Boy, I hope I should buy more Smith and Wesson stock because it's going to go up." Uh, on the other hand, I also think, and again, this was the, kind of the point of my LA Times piece, um, I find that trying to talk to people uh, like the NRA, they are completely just inaccessible to reason. The, the NRA really is, uh, has moved from being a gun ownership. Their most recent ads have gone from being a gun ownership organization to being a culture warfare organization. And so I think that there is no way these two, I mean, I, I really have no... You know, all joking aside about I, you know, the way President Obama approached it, I think what the NRA is doing is basically cultural warfare that is incredibly divisive, um, and it and it works because they're very good at it. So no, I don't I don't think these two groups are ever going to be able to talk to each other. But I don't think the American left has, has broken the code on this yet. My question is uh, on expertise and the public sphere, and um, it's. How much leeway should we give, as a society, uh, experts or public intellectuals to speak on matters beyond the strict area of their expertise? How, is it, how much leeway do we give now? How much C is, it, is it too much? Is it, um, do we, what are the pros and cons of having more or less leeway? Uh, I, I think experts, and I've done it, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I will, you know, let he who is without sin, right? Um, have I ever gotten out of my lane? Every day. Uh, you know, let me talk to you about gun control some more. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, and I, and so I think you know, very important that when anybody, whenever you're seeing anybody speak to you about, and you know, check on them, find out who they are. When you don't check on people and figure out that they're not experts, you end up with Seb Gorka uh, working in the White House along with you know Papadopoulos, this kid that's now going to you know break down the whole White House apparently. Uh, but with that said, I will make one plea for experts across fields and then stop, which is one thing experts are good at, particularly if they have a background in science, in the sciences, social sciences, uh, we know how to structure an inquiry. We know the, different, we know the rules of the game uh, in terms of what constitutes a piece of evidence and what doesn't. You'll notice that when I, for all my joking about gun control, uh, the piece I wrote was actually about people not understanding statistical risk. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on guns, but I, I, I know a thing or two about, you know, statistical inference and probability and things like that. So um, give them a little, give them a little leeway, but, 
you know, as President Reagan said, trust but verify. Uh, is your question for one of the other panelists? I want to make sure we're not just talking to Tom. This is for Dr. This is for Dr. West, actually. Good. Yeah. Uh, Dr. West, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier on that uh, with free speech, the person who makes the speech has a responsibility and the person who listens has a responsibility. Now, my question is uh, from the perspective of the person listening, if all the listeners were well-educated and professional and experts, we'd have no problem because Milo could come and spew his filth and you know, we, we just uh, you know, argue with him or have a conversation and move on. So that's the first point. My question is, in the modern world, a lot of the free speech, the way it's being delivered, people are being bombarded by information. So there's no time to actually think about what's being said. You can't let it, put it colloquially, swirl around in your head and form an opinion about what's being said. You move on to the next feed and the next feed. So is there any hope really for the modern, uh, in the modern world for younger people to actually uh, absorb what is being said and actually counter it with an argument or will they just be part of the herd? I think you're right that there's a lot of information around and um, some people think that's part of the problem with... Uh, with um, there's too much information around. Too much information to process it all. You can't possibly attend to it all, let alone rationally evaluate it and consult experts and all of that. I mean, some sort of maybe division of epistemic labour makes sense, where some people, you know, certain groups of the population attend to certain ideas and in a way that's what is supposed to happen with experts, right? You have certain people who are... Uh, dedicating themselves to uh, understanding, getting on top of a whole lot of information in relation to a particular area and then thinking about it and hopefully passing on informed opinions to other people. But, of course, that system um, of epistemic division of labour, which does work very well promoting truth and knowledge, that only works if people are prepared to pay attention to experts and give what they say some credence. And also, I correctly identify who's expert about what, you know, to pick up on the previous question. So I think it's possible, but there have to be certain broader norms in place, yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks for coming, everyone. Thanks for the interesting conversation. Uh, just wanted to direct my question towards Sarah and James, because um, you guys touched on identity a lot, and I was wondering... Uh, Today, everyone's kind of buried in their iPhones and echo chambers, and uh, there's sort of this increasing polarisation towards certain political views. Um, how do we diversify them, and how do we get these uh, ideas out in the open, change people's minds, and actually have a discussion, you know, apart from Twitter or Facebook or whatnot? How can we... Uh, yeah, what's the best platform, I'm guessing? Do you guys have any ideas on that? Thanks. Can I go first? You can. Uh, well, um, identities is, I mean, that's a pretty, it's a pretty broad concept. Um, I can speak of it in terms of identity politics and, and, and using identities to, to move around in politics. Um, I'm not of the opinion that they're always necessarily harmful. Um, you can make the case that civil liberties and the fights for minority rights just in a, a thousand different ways and the rights for women were in some senses um, a, a form of identity politics. I think the kinds of identity politics that are toxic are the ones uh, which... Uh, well, let me, let me go back. Um, the kinds that are beneficial are the ones that understand all of us as um, beings that are essentially the same. 
um, and instead say, well, I'm a woman and I'm being treated unjustly even though I deserve to be treated just like everyone else. So there's a, there's a, um, a reference to a commonality there, a universal sense of, like, I have the same human dignity as everyone else. Um, the more toxic form is the one that says, I am different in some specific way. And what, what I've been seeing um, quite often, and it's, it's been disturbing me, is this idea that your identity, um, specifically your, maybe your race, race or your sex, grants you with some sort of some sort of truth, some sort of knowledge that cannot be questioned by those who do not share that identity. Um, and I, can, I, I feel that this is something that's incredibly um, destructive to the idea of, of that common human um, core that we all share. Um, and it, it is distinctly anti-liberal anti politics. It's, it's distinctly anti-progressive values and, um, um, you know, and even human rights. So I'm glad she covered the identity part so I don't have to. Um, not for any political reason, it's because I actually wanted to talk about something else completely because unbeknownst to anybody in this room except perhaps Helen, who wrote their manifesto with me, is that I'm actually writing a book at this very time. Well, not at the moment, actually. It's not here. I didn't bring a laptop with me, but I'm writing a book presently about how to have conversations across impossible moral and, and political divides. And so I've been invested in this literature for a couple of years, so I'm maybe kind of an expert in how to have these kinds of dialogues. And the, the long answer begins with it depends on what you're aiming for, but the shortest answer that I could give you is if you wish to be able to have better conversations, make it a value that civil conversation comes first, one in which you hear each other out, agree or disagree, and see what people have to say, go home and weigh it in your own mind after the conversation, and then, you know, agree to converse again so that you can keep this kind of, you know, budding friendship or active friendship open. Now, that only solves the problem for you, so this is kind of one of those things where you have to, if you want to start having a lot of better conversations, you'd better start expecting the people you have a conversation with to have better conversations too. So... Uh, I know that we had a few discussions earlier in the day that you wouldn't be aware of, but where the idea of shame came up, public shaming. Shame people for having in, for uncivil conversations. It's not cool, you know? Why are you acting like this? We're just trying to talk over this issue or that issue. Why? What's the big deal? Let's talk about this civilly. And, and there are lots of tricks. You can present yourself as somebody who enjoys civil conversation, so then, so your partner that you're conversing with after that point will feel obliged to match that socially. Or if you really want to play a devilish trick, trying to give you one more tip before I shut up, you can say, um, you seem to me to be the kind of person who really enjoys civil conversation, so why can't we talk about this for a minute? And then now you've locked them in. This is a technique from sales called altar casting that people do to you all the time. You might want to look into it, but it's incredibly <laughs> effective if you want to get somebody to conform to a particular social role. And getting somebody to conform to a pro-social role, like you are a good person to have civil conversation with, is something that I would definitely encourage, whereas you know, some other marketing-type uses, maybe not as much. Okay. To, to have a proper answer to our, all our questions, we need a proper framework. So individualism versus, uh, versus right. a collaboration, uh, it's very important because when we answer from different aspects, you have totally different. And I'll just quote one quick 
I suppose your question would be good because uh, you, I understand. You you, you'll get the question afterwards. Uh, and just a quote, quick, quick uh, uh, thing from the, one of the biggest geniuses, Nikola Tesla, who said that scientists today are going deep, thinking deep, but not clear. All right. Uh, so the 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 question is: Are we actually answering one question within the context of individualism? Because from the business point, we know that, that the system, which is the most important thing, is as good as the weakest point. When we put individualism in front, we're actually working in a wrong context and we'll have all wrong answers. Okay, it's your question. Good. Thank so you. if I understood the heart of that question, it's actually that uh, how do we solve the problem of the fact that not all individuals are really good at, at dealing with, with their own issue and I think that this is a the matter of individualism doesn't mean that you strike off on your own or individuality as I wanted to say it doesn't mean striking off on your own it means that you put forward your own attempt at, at industry that's capitalism your own attempt at understanding the world that's liberal knowledge production uh, your your own attempt at understanding the politics and that's democracy and then you engage with that you can have whatever you want in the private sphere with these things and if you want to engage in the public sphere, however, you have to be open to criticism. So it's, we're, we're putting trust, when I said things about this unite under modernity, we're putting trust in a system that works because everything, everybody can say what they want to say. But then again, if you say it publicly, you can believe what you want, say what you want. And if you put it out there publicly, you damn well better expect it to get criticized. And if it can't, if it can't survive criticism, keep it to yourself you not keep it private like don't say it just don't expect anybody else to believe it nobody is nobody the the individuality here is nobody is required to believe something just because you do and just because you've said it and if you want to make something public then expect it to get criticized that which survives this criticism process over a period of time we provisionally accept as knowledge we provisionally accept as a uh, legitimate government, we, we legitimately accept as a functioning economy, and then we do our best to make sure these things stay on the rails by constant correcting of ourselves, and that's what we really need to commit to. So we aren't avoiding a collective society, we're avoiding collectivism where the society dictates to you what to do. Did others want to pick up on this guy? No? No. Okay. Short version is, if you say something you have the freedom to say whatever you want. You are not free to live without consequences for saying it. Okay. Good question. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of the expert, and I take what you say about the importance of our listening to experts, um, in particular taking scholarship on board in a public arena, which would be wonderful, except don't you think it's true that... Um, the reason behind the massive, I think, public distrust of expertise is because there's a feeling, rightly or wrongly, that experts have led us into genetic modification and nuclear catastrophe and industrial-scale farming and, you know, massive destruction of the environment and also the kind of mass inequality that we now see resulting, arguably, from modernity. So. How do we deal with that fact and also the distrust spinning off that? I think that's what we Well, uh, yes. Uh, on behalf of all experts, let me apologize to you for the longest lifespans and the healthiest lives 
and the most abundant food, and the highest level of standard of living, and 70 years since the last great global conflict. But at what cost? Peace, health, knowledge. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Now, with that said, um, you know, have we, made, have we made mistakes? Have we led you down the wrong path on occasion? Of course we have, because we're human beings. We, we're fallible. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes we answer the question you ask us, not the one that we should tell you about. Um, you know, this is the problem of how do we, like with income inequality, how do we, you know, how do we create iPhones at $900 instead of saying, you know what, maybe we all don't need iPhones. Um, but that's partly a market-driven thing. But I, I really, uh, and I'll stop, but I, I have to push back on this notion that, oh, look at the situation we're in, we're in because of experts. This, if you had said to anybody in 1970 that this is what 2017 would look like, they would have called you an insane utopian. Thank you. Question. Um, conservative students are having a hard time holding events and inviting speakers on campus without having to be met with exaggerated claims for of violence and bigotry by their ideological opponents. This is a question for uh, Dr. West. Um, I'll just keep the statement short, as brief as possible. Uh, the University of Sydney Conservative Club had to delay a screening at Red Peel, a documentary about men's rights activists. Um, and the, they also had to pay an unnecessary security fee of $500 um, when they held a panel on the dangers of socialism. And there wasn't any protesters um, arriving. Um, I'm studying at Macquarie University, and the Liberal Club had held a debate on same-sex marriage, but we had to delay the event because the speaker, who happens to be in support of same-sex marriage, had to opt out because um, some students had smeared um, the speaker for participating, and also some club members for bigotry. Um, once we found a replacement, uh, students have often interrupted the uh, replacement speaker, and we only he heard the um, speaker who spoke in against same-sex marriage. Um, universities are supposed to be an institution that promotes free inquiry. My question is, what sort of duties and responsibilities do these students and the academics, academia having holding events, and is it still possible to maintain a free-flowing marketplace of beliefs on campus as the climate of discourse becomes more agitated. So I think as a normative ideal, uh, it would be best for free speech and for the values that, um, that, that free speech is supposed to promote if we allow the expression of, um, you know, so long as what someone's going to say is not going to cause a riot or something. I think that is a legitimate reason. Thanks for that. But in general, I think... Uh, Free speech goes better, and values like knowledge and rational inquiry go better to the extent that speakers are allowed to express different opinions, especially, I think, unpopular opinions deserve a hearing, you know, ones that, ideas that haven't much been heard before. And I think that there are duties on um, audiences to attend uh, to what's being said and to engage with it respectfully. But that, by that, I don't mean you can't say that's a stupid idea and give a whole bunch of reasons, but I mean you... You know, don't insult the speaker, don't block your ears, don't heckle. So I think there are kind of norms around how uh, free speech ought to go, norms that um, 
John Stuart Mill talks a lot about, for instance, in, in his book on liberty, where he talks about temperate speech and the importance of letting unpopular ideas be heard and, and so on. So that's my view about, um, about campus. Let many ideas be expressed and um, let those ideas be heard and considered, hopefully, in a climate of um, respect and rational inquiry. I mean, we can disagree all, all we like with the opinions that are expressed, but so long as we do so respectfully. Can I, can I so, add something to that, yeah. just, just a little bit? Um, it, so long as we're talking about duties that we have and the university has to speakers and, stu and students and students have to the university, um, students should also feel a duty to their fellow students. Um, and I can't help but feel when I see students shut down a, a conversation that other students want to have, that other students are there for and they want to hear, uh, that there is uh, an imposition there and then there, uh, that there is uh, a lack of respect for what the other fellow students might want. So this is something, I mean, just to add a little bit there, um, I think should be considered as well. Thank you. So um, I'm just keenly aware of the time, and I'm looking at Meredith. I think that we have, we're nearly over time, and I know many people got their hands up, but we only have time for one more question, I'm sorry. So please keep your question brief. Uh, and Thank um, you. Uh, my question is uh, regarding Julian Assange, and whether if he qualifies for the post-truth dilemma where um, we have certain personalities like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage who twist the truth very blatantly, whereas uh, Julian Assange might omit the truth, and does he qualify, qualify as, a, as a lie as well? Oh. He's part of the problem. <laughs> There's no doubt that Julian Assange... Okay, first... Uh, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to applaud that Assange is a horrible person, you know, let, I, I agree completely. Um, he is part of the problem. I will also say my personal opinion, my professional opinion as a as a national security expert, is I think as an American, I think of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks as a hostile foreign intelligence organization. Uh, there is no doubt about that in my mind. So this notion, I mean this. He has really been selling the idea of information. I've, I mean, I've run into people say, but, you know, Assange told us the truth. Um, and as long as, you know, stealing a lot of stuff, curating it, and then leaking it selectively, targeted at people, is considered the truth. I, I think one of the things I find shocking about the Assange business, at least in the United States, there was once a time where we were grown-ups about this. We kind of knew bad guys when we saw them. I mean, in the way that people have reacted to Assange, at least some people, the people who seem to accept him, it's almost childlike in the way that they relate to Assange. And it's almost embarrassing to me to, to have to say that. Um, but Assange is part of the problem. And I think the fact that, you know, the, the people who really are using terms like fake news, people like Farage and Trump and the rest of them, seem to like Assange so much, tells you everything you need to know about Julian Assange. Um. Snowden, Man Snowden and Manning are traitors who stole information. And ha pardon? They're not. There are kids. They are kids who stole classified information and gave it to other people. Neither one of them. I don't believe for a moment that either one of those guys understood a word of what they stole. The idea that they read those documents. Yes, I'm sure Edward Snowden carefully vetted one million Pentagon documents. No, wait, I'm lying. He didn't. Neither did Chelsea Manning. The, not, Manning was groomed by Assange for, for exactly this. And I think, you know, one of the things that made me write the book 
on expertise actually came out of an argument I was having with someone about Snowden where I said, as a Russia specialist, trust me, there's the hand of Russia behind this. And a young person who really wanted to admire Snowden said, Tom, I don't think you understand Russia. Let me explain Russia to you. So uh, I, I think that you know, they, they are part of this whole problem that, you know, to, and I, I think you know, James and others talked about this, there's also this notion that I will arrogate to myself what is the truth and then take, undertake uh, actions that I think are warranted regardless of what anybody else thinks about it because I am the only person in the world capable, I, you know, that heroic narrative of I'm the only person who really understood this. So this is obviously um, a topic that we could talk about all evening, but um, <laughs> among many others, so unfortunately we don't have all evening, but um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming, and I especially want to thank our panelists, Carolyn, Tom, Sarah, and Jack. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.